Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, I'm joined by Mark Dorfman, one of the world's rarest creatures, a true New Yorker who works in Montana. Mark spends his time at Biomimicry 3.8, inspiring Fortune 500 companies to rethink how they make products, and he educates people on the value of looking to nature to solve some of our toughest problems in chemistry and materials. Mark is also a world traveler, a thoughtful proponent of living with less from his 300 square foot apartment, and a great storyteller. In this episode, Mark and I got a chance to talk about the importance of thriving cities, the interesting advances in how technology is changing how we can perceive chemistry, and the impact genetic engineering has on us and the environment, along with many more stories. Enjoy. We haven't really done anything yet. So hello, Mark. How are you doing today? Hi, Tim. I'm doing great. Thank you. Here in the, in the tropical um, environments of South Florida. Right. But you normally don't live in Florida. You visit Florida often, along with Nepal, which I want to get to. Uh, but, um, but normally, could you tell us a little bit about where you live? Yeah, so I live in a 300-square-foot apartment right in the middle of Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I had my first car at 17. Um, so for, I don't know, the first 13 years of my life, or at least the first decade, uh, you know, once I had a driver's license, um, I had to deal with a car, you know, to get everywhere. And uh, in the wintertime, I had to deal with getting into a freezing car and scraping the ice off and dealing with the roads and all that. And one thing I love about living in New York City is that I don't need a car. And I haven't owned a car for over 30 years. Um, bicycle is the main way I get around. And, uh, you know, if the weather doesn't allow for that or some other reason, I then have the subways and buses and Uber and everything else available. So, you know, along with the cultural activities that New York City has to offer and extended family also that I have there, um, I just really enjoy living in the middle of that big city. And, you know, one thing that really makes that big city and probably other uh, very dense urban environments, a joy to live in is access to nature. And mm. people probably don't really realize how New York is just surrounded by water. Um, so there's a lot of waterfront to access. And these days there are um, an increasing number of bike lanes that are uh, following along the water. And uh, Central Park, you know, Central Park is an absolute gem. It's about you know, two square miles of, um, of just areas that are landscaped and areas that are just kind of natural woods. And every day I make sure I spend an hour or more riding a bike along the waterfront and around Central Park. It's just a nice um, combination, a nice balance of, you know, that really intense urban environment with, with a bit of nature. I think that's great. I mean, one of the things that I've always found surprising is how you love New York City. And it's one of those things that I I struggled with as a uh, a suburban kid trying to really fall in love with cities. And I figured out that a lot of the New Yorkers who I see just, you know, really enjoy it are, are people who get out 
into the wild every day. And what I mean by that is like either going on a bike ride or going on a jog, go to the waterfront, yeah. go to the parks and really take advantage of all of those aspects of the city. Yeah. Um, and, and then it becomes a whole different experience. I think when you can, when you can do that in the, in, you know, Manhattan. Yeah. And I think that having cities that thrive, especially dense cities that thrive is really what's going to save our, um, natural areas because, you know, we, we, we really want cities to work and we want people to want to live in cities so that our population is concentrated for the most part in dense areas, leaving the forests, the wetlands, the deserts just, uh, you know, as natural as they can be. So I think, you know, even people who hate cities should really want them to thrive so that our natural areas can stay that way. And you're probably one of the only people in the world who uh, works in Montana and lives in New York City. (laughs) So far, maybe, but uh, hopefully we're just going to expand and there's people in in a variety of places. Well, you know, um, remote... Remote working, for lack of a better term, is probably going to be something that's more the norm. I mean, I remember first starting my professional career that just having access to a computer was was something that was not very easy. Or if you had access to a computer, the computer itself took up a whole room. So as we as we progress and we have these devices and systems that let us just like we are now, you know, being in very different spaces, but being able to talk relatively easily um, with each other, that people working in remote places together is probably going to more and more be the norm. There's sometimes when I go to Nepal or to other places and I continue to work and having everything from email to video conferencing and access to information online allows that to happen. Well, let's dive into that a little bit. Do you mind explaining to our listeners what exactly it is you do do for work? So I'm a biomimicry chemist and I work for Biomimicry 3.8, which for the most part, is a consulting firm that works with companies that are trying to innovate with ideas inspired by nature. And being a chemist, I tend to work on projects that involve toxic chemicals. So uh, we work with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, a lot of big name companies that are looking to find better ways of waterproofing or forming colors or forming coatings, um, doing all sorts of things uh, in a way that is more effective and more in sync with the environment. So has less of an impact on both public health and environmental health. And what I find really fascinating, besides the fact that I can work every day and get paid to learn how nature works, which is just amazing, is that after 3.8 billion years of life on Earth, there's really, you'd you'd really be hard-pressed to find any challenge that we run across in our industrial society that some organism somewhere in some kind of environmental context hasn't already run into. You know, 
insulation or structure or all sorts of functionalities. You just would be really hard pressed to find something that to find that that challenge has not already been one that living organisms have faced. And I think that that's really a revelation for a lot of people. We tend to think that the challenges that we have as an industrial society are really unique to a technological society. But, um, but really, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything that we run across that, that nature hasn't had to face. And so you can look at nature really as just as technological, if not more so, than our industrial society. And have you been finding that working with chemists on the, you know, who aren't nature inspired, have you shown them things where they go, oh my gosh, that's amazing? Or how easy has it been to have those conversations? You know, it depends on the people you're talking to. And it's certainly gotten easier over the 10 years that I've been doing this. You know, people tend to be a bit, uh, maybe arrogant is the wrong word, but kind of kind of married to what they already know and believe. I mean, think back in history to when we thought the world was flat or we thought the sun revolved around the earth. You know, people really believe those things. And if you uh, tried to give some other viewpoint, you know, you were looked at as crazy. But then eventually people began to realize that, you know, that that probably does make sense. And perhaps those are more extreme than just talking about nature as inspiration for chemistry. But 10 years ago, when I first started doing this, uh, people sort of thought, oh, well, that's a nice idea. But, you know, we go right back to what they were doing. But there's been a major shift in the outlook uh, of nature as a as a source of of inspiration. And I think it's it's partly because biomimicry and other bio-inspired innovations have been around long enough. And there have been some really interesting things that have come out of that, that people really are, really are starting to, uh, to wake up and accept it. And, you know, within just the realm of, of, of chemists, there are some chemists who just want to do exactly what they were taught in school and don't really feel comfortable stepping outside of that comfort zone. And then you have other chemists who just want to grab on to a problem and figure out every single way to solve it and just thrive in an environment where there are new ideas that are thrown at them. Um, and fortunately, I've had the opportunity to work with chemists like that, and they just completely run with all sorts of, of, um, of new ideas that, that, that get inspired by nature. Mm. I know when I started doing some of this work, I was always amazed. Uh, I was surprised by the kinds of things that nature had come up with. After doing this for so long, are you still surprised? Yes. You know, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's just fascinating to to sort of be on the forefront, being able to to read papers um, at the forefront of discovery. You know, th there's still so much we don't know about the natural world, especially at the molecular and submolecular level. Uh, but there's all, always always new phenomena and such being being found out. Uh, one of which is just the role of of water in in biochemistry, you know, we used to think that 
Well, you know, water's main role was as a solvent, but we're finding out more and more about the role of nature in various aspects of, of, of chemical synthesis and, and even the, um, the formation of shape because nature's chemistry is really shape-based. It's not just about, you know, two different chemicals uh, ramming into each other and then reacting in some way and either forming bonds or breaking bonds. It's really about creating these complex networks of uh, carbon skeletons with all sorts of other things, decorating them, and then forming a specific shape and it's the interaction of shapes, particularly, you know, a hand and glove type of interaction that really results in, um, in either chemical reactions or other kinds of triggers such as, you know, scent molecules triggering something in the brain saying, oh, that's really good. I'll stick around or, you know, let me throw that away and not get anywhere near it. Um, and so water has, a, has more and more of a role and not just the solvent that's helping those those biochemical shapes form, but also in the, uh, in the formation of the structures that lead to the self-assembly of those shapes. So yes, there's just always, always new things that, um, uh, that, that we're finding out. And of course, every time you find out something new, it just raises more questions that you strive to answer. I love that. That, that reminded me of um, why I started really liking, I guess, what people call biochemistry. But I always thought that word didn't really apply because what what I was fascinated by was the the proteins and their shape and the way that it almost started in my mind. It's like Legos with magnets, and you just kind of like get all of the right Lego configuration and, and it's about the shapes that fit together and do actions. And of course, all these things are in motion all the time. So yeah. it becomes this sort of dancing Lego magnet puzzle party. Yeah. yeah, it is amazingly fun. And, and one other thing that they, you know, cause you were saying that, that chemicals, you know, we're, we're used to seeing pictures of static structures in a chemistry book, but you know, not only are they not two-dimensional, you know, they're three-dimensional, but they're moving. You know, unless the temperature is absolute zero, that's like minus 400 something or other degrees Fahrenheit, chemicals are spinning and, and uh, you know, going back and forth and rotating. There's just this, this, this constant movement. And, one, and, and, and there's a pattern to that movement. And one thing I just read recently was how Science is trying to use our auditory senses to help understand what these complex three-dimensional shapes are of proteins in, in particular. And so, you know, we've been using our, our, uh, our sense of, of sight to be able to, to do that. But scientists are beginning to take the information that we do know, such as uh, the order of the string of amino acids that are building the, uh, 
the proteins, the way that, that they interact or don't interact with the solvent, you know, if they're sort of oily, nonpolar parts of the protein or polar parts of the protein, they interact with the solvent in different ways. And they've been using different sorts of things that you can measure about these proteins and then using that information to create melodies that then help people or scientists through uh, through the auditory sense to identify patterns because the uh, the identification of patterns is really at the at the you know what 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 underlies biomimicry as a means of of coming up with new innovative ways of of solving problems. One problem is, or you know, one potential avenue to a solution is understanding how nature forms its shapes. And so uh, taking this information that we can measure about proteins and and creating melodies from it so that our so so we can listen to them and uh, and identify patterns through that sense, which at least according to the scientists who wrote this paper, uh, would help you identify patterns that you couldn't uh, through just vision alone. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Um, if we have yeah. the opportunity, I'm going to find some of that and play it right now. <laughs> <laughs> So hopefully you just heard a protein or a chemical. Well, you know, it gives a whole new meaning to it ain't over till the fat lady sings. But, you know, whenever I talk to young people, whether it be, you know, high school or college age, just about biomimicry and about nature's chemistry, I very often call my um, presentations, you know, nature is alive with chemistry because there's kind of a you know, misconception out there that that chemicals are man-made entities that contaminate an otherwise chemical-free natural world and that nothing can really be further from the truth because chemistry really underlies all of this magnificence that we see in the natural world. And so young people seem to really get that almost at a visceral level. So uh, I think as as kind of the older generation, of which I'm part of, uh, kind of moves on that, you know, as young people, you know, come into positions of, of decision-making power, that everything from the design of curricula to the design of cities is really going to, uh, going to be more, more in sync with, with, with our environment. And it's kind of a perfect storm because our analytical tools to understanding how nature works at the molecular level or at the macro level is also continuing to increase. So I'm really enthused by the fact that I see not only young people who really 
want a connection to the natural world, but they're going to have access to so much more information that's going to enable them to be so much more creative uh, than perhaps we've been in the past. I think one of the things that has fascinated me is the idea that in the future, you'll be able to hear those molecules. You'll be able to see them in 3D and you'll be putting on your little VR goggles and you'll be able to dive into the nano world, the chemical world, and viscerally get to experience these things in a way that up until, you know, even today, that's very difficult. You can only do that in these, you know, labs that have access to that. But I feel like we're getting to a point where that becomes a much more accessible possibility where people can see that living chemistry in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And the same technology that allows us to see it at work in the natural world also allows us to manipulate uh, in that virtual world. So we can try all sorts of things in the virtual world. And when we do, and, and you can do that much faster than trying to do that in, in, the, in a laboratory setting. Uh, and then once you see things that look really promising, then you can begin to actually play in the lab and develop prototypes that you can actually touch and feel and share. So I think, yeah, that's, that's another uh, technological tool that's going to allow us to advance really quickly and effectively. I was just at a recent meeting where they the big question was, what are the limitations of looking to the natural world or biomimicry? Um, maybe what, what hasn't been accelerating quickly? And, you know, one of the answers or things that kept up, uh, kept coming up was the ability to prototype rapidly um, in the same using, not using the tools that nature uses, but um, on the level that, 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 uh, the natural world evolves, which is molecular, nano, micro, that we we tend not to have the tools to prototype at that space. And so I think you're right. The ability to start to experiment and play in that space is hugely important. Yeah. Yeah, because we're going to more and more, especially in the materials world, be developing from the from the bottom up. And everybody talks about 3D printing as this additive manufacturing tool that can revolutionize manufacturing. Uh, but I think that 3D printing is just the tip of the iceberg, that there are going to be so many more uh, additive manufacturing tools that are going to um, be developed, many of which probably will be developed because of being inspired by nature's quote-unquote additive manufacturing tools. Uh, but that's that's also going to be be very significant in enabling us to make really effective materials and make materials that can easily be, you know, circulated within our economy, just like materials are circulated through ecosystems uh, in a way that that just allows uh, materials to be used, decomposed, reused. Uh, and creating conditions conducive to life. Well, that sounded very prophetic. I, do you have any specific examples that you can share of new additive manufacturing technologies that you see interesting, or even if they're from the natural world? Well, I haven't seen anything uh, that's been developed uh, a 
aside from 3D printing, it seems that within the realm of 3D printing that there are improvements on that, uh, you know, so being able to, to 3D print with multiple types of materials uh, at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you mentioned uh, the Warner Babcock Institute. So we're actually partnering with them right now to, uh, to create a new product and uh, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to be working with them on something that we're doing through 3D printing. Um, and they have a couple of 3D printers, one of which is more advanced, but being more advanced, it's much more prone to not working properly. So, <laughs> you know, you're really thrilled about what you can possibly do. Um, and at the same time, you know, we're at a very early stage, so you, know, you get a little bit of frustrated, but that's just, that's just part of the, part of the stepping stone. But I guess, you know, in, in, in nature, one of the pillars of, of manufacturing is, is self-assembly. And so we're beginning to understand how that works a little better. And, and Tim, you mentioned Legos with, with magnets and, you know, if, if, if you think about how nature decorates uh, these carbon skeletons, nature tries to leverage <clears throat> paired opposites. So whether it's positive and negative electrical charges or other types of attractive or repulsive forces, you know, hydrogen bonding and other things that, you know, people may or may not be familiar with, but let's suffice it to say that, uh, Besides just a, you know positive and negative um, electrical charges, there are other paired opposites that that nature can use at the chemical level and decorate these carbon skeletons in such a way that as soon as you've made it and you know piece it together and then kind of just let go of it, particularly in a in a watery environment, all those strategically placed paired opposites, either because they repel each other or because they attract each other, they self-assemble into a very uh, specific shape. And I think that's going to be um, part of our additive manufacturing process to not only make the manufacturing process um, more efficient, but also al allow us to decompose in a in a more effective uh, and energy-friendly way so that when a material is at the end of its useful life, rather than just be downcycled, it can actually be taken apart, not necessarily into its constituent, uh, constituent elements. You know, you're not going to take all the carbons and put them over here and the hydrogens and put them over there. But like nature, take the basic building blocks, which in proteins would be the amino acids and uh, carbohydrates would be the sugars to just separate those out and then use those building blocks to make um, new materials that are just as valuable as the materials that that they were decomposed from mm, yes i was just talking with julian vincent mm -hmm. um, last week and one of the things that he sort of mentioned casually on the side was that uh, in the natural world when when he was looking at it the way that humans solve our uh, a lot of our engineering challenges, especially at the nano and the micro level, is to just throw energy at it. You know, whether we're transforming energy or moving energy around, but we 
we tend to use energy 70% of the time to solve our issues. Whereas nature only uses like bulk energy 5% of the time to solve challenges. Instead, it uses shape or it uses information as a way to um, solve a lot of those challenges at the nano and micro scale. And so that just as an interesting aside that we have a lot of, (laughs) you're absolutely right. We have a lot of room to get much better at doing those things. And I know you and I have had conversations for a long time about metals in nature. And so I just wanted to uh, uh, bring that subject up again and see if, see if there are any big patterns that, that we've noticed in the natural world around metals. Well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is how nature does uh, all that it does do with metals with just a much smaller subset of metals than we do in our industrial world. So, you know, um, on the periodic table, there may be, you know, a dozen at the most metals that nature uses to do everything it does, as opposed to two dozen or more that uh, the industrial world uses, some of which are toxic just in and of themselves, regardless of, of what kind of, uh, of molecule that they're associated with. Um, and at the same time, nature manages to do things without metals that we utilize metals for. Um, and even in the, you know, if, if it's not man, it's the inanimate natural world. So, you know, one thing I try to point out when I am giving presentations on biomimicry is when I'm talking about nature, I'm talking about the living natural world, not the inanimate natural world, because it's the living natural world that's under the constraints of having to do everything it does without poisoning its environment because it has to survive, thrive, and rear its young uh, in the same place where it lives. So you can look at inanimate nature and see color, for example. So there are some extraordinarily uh, bright colors in minerals, and very often those bright colors incorporate minerals, I mean metals, that can be toxic like arsenic and cadmium and lead, uh, whereas nature manages to make color uh, either using organic chemicals that don't have metals in them or by using structure to play with light. Um, and nature's metals, uh, or nature uses metals, it seems, often in uh, catalytic ways. So to create the reaction center of, of enzymes, um, to be able to do complex chemistry that might otherwise require a lot more energy uh, or that may may produce unwanted byproducts by creating enzymes as catalysts. Nature is able to do uh, chemical transformations in a much more elegant and, and sophisticated ways. And often metals are at the center of, of those types of uh, enzymatic catalysts. And uh, one thing that I think you pointed out to me a long time ago that always had, it was kind of an interesting conversation is that 
in the natural world, once you move outside of the sort of atomic chemical interactions, the metals that are the biometals, the biomaterials, tend to be oxidized. So it uses the oxidized version of metals in the natural world rather than uh, how we struggle to keep everything rust-proof. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't see you don't see bulk metals in nature. You don't see steel beams and iron nails and that sort of thing in nature. You see them either as their their oxidized form, um, uh, or in conjunction with with more complex organic molecules. But then nature also has to deal with some of the toxic metals that may just be in the environment that they are living in. Um, and in those situations, they, uh, you know, the living organisms, rather than have those toxic elements in their oxidized form, have them in their reduced form. So something like mercury. You know, if you look at mercury in its metallic form, just as, uh, um, you know, that silvery liquid and you swallow it, it's probably not going to have much of an effect. It's just going to go right through you. But if it's in a more oxidized form, then it can incorporate into uh, biological structures and, and have an impact. So where nature is exposed to something like mercury, uh, nature's developed systems to keep those metals in their reduced form so that they don't uh, cause biological harm. I was wondering, because I've always found this interesting, could you explain your history with with Nepal and maybe what you find interesting about Nepal? Well, when I um, finished my undergrad degree, I was just going to go right into grad school. And my mother, of all people, said, why don't you join the Peace Corps? And, you know, my mother's, you know, she's this nice Jewish girl from the Bronx. Uh, She never traveled overseas. I don't know how she got that idea. But anyway, she planted it in my head. So while I was also applying to grad schools, I looked into the Peace Corps and applied to the Peace Corps. And at that time, anyway, they were sending me descriptions of places that I could go that, you know, fit into the education I had. And at that time really what I was qualified to do is to be a math and science teacher in places in the world where they don't have math and science teachers. So they were sending me these descriptions of these villages in Zaire and in Belize and in Malaysia and in Nepal. And I was thinking I was going to go to Zaire or Malaysia because Zaire was, you know, deepest, darkest Africa and the deep jungles and Malaysia was, you know, tropical beaches. And my cousin said, you're crazy. Go to Nepal. And I didn't even I'd know where Nepal was, so I looked at it, uh, looked up in an encyclopedia, an actual, you know, paper book encyclopedia, <laughs> and saw that it was between India and Tibet and uh, the Himalayas and all that. And so to make a long story short, that's where I went. And, you know, I had been living at home until I joined the Peace Corps because the college I went to was close enough to home that I could just commute from home. So when I moved away from home, it was to the other side of the world, to someplace that was just absolutely, completely different in the language and the culture and the 
landscape, the geography, just everything. And for the first six months, that was really hard, actually, although I was with a group of about 17 other people. Uh, so we were all together being trained for the first three months, which made it easier than just all of a sudden being in a rural village on my own, being the only Westerner around there. But it was also just that realization that the United States, um, you know, the, the cultural quote-unquote norms that we have uh, are not nature-based. They're, they're culture-based. You know, the, 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 the roles we have that men and women play or, you know, other aspects of, 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 of the culture are not directed by God or the laws of nature. They're part of our culture. And other cultures in the world see things completely different. And that was just so eye-opening to me. But what really keeps me, I mean, so it was sort of a rebirth going to Nepal. But what keeps me going back there is that the people are just so friendly. Um, I, I felt so much a part of, of, you know, so 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 welcome there. Um, and plus, it's beautiful, and the food is really good, and um, uh, it just it just really you know took a part of my heart that you know I'll have forever. And so that's why I keep going back there, and I'm close to Nepali friends who have since moved here. Uh, so, in a nutshell, that's my connection to Nepal. Are there any specific challenges that that you see that Nepal has either solved or that it has that um, that you've learned from um, in your own work? You know, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is I remember being in the capital city, and you know, there's all these homeless kids or street kids or whatever. And I was eating an orange and I, uh, you know, thought, okay, let me share part of the orange. And so I gave it to one of the kids and I thought that kid that I gave it to was just going to run off by himself so he could eat the whole thing. But I gave it to him and he took apart each one of the sections and shared it with the other kids that he was with. And you know, that image has just stayed with me uh, for decades that, you know, even someone who didn't really have much, that once they got something, uh, unlike kind of the New York ur uh, suburban environment that I was brought up in, where I guess people were just more selfish. We had a lot of things, but, you know, you want more that these people who had nothing you know, we're just willing to share whatever little they got with with other people. Um, so that 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 really stuck with me. I'm going to jump into some of our rapid fire questions, and so these are short questions, but they're also um, you can we can take as long as we want to answer them, and we can go into all kinds of different directions from there. But they're they're all just little prompts. Mark, <laughs> when do you feel most connected to the world? You know, I think, as I mentioned before, these bike rides that I take, when I'm just riding my bike, either if it's along the river and watching the the little waves that are on the river because of the ebbing or flowing tide and because of the wind and the smell of the wind that's coming off the water, or when I'm riding around Central Park and just looking at the the plants and listening to the crickets that 
I think it's that combination of actually moving my body and being part of the natural world that that I just really feel connected, energized, and grounded all at the same time. What is one of the most harmful things we are doing today, but we don't realize? Wow. So if it was just the part of the question that is, you know, what are we doing that's harmful? There's certainly a lot of answers, but what are we doing that's harmful that we don't realize? And I guess it it depends who the we are, because if you're just a typical consumer, there's a lot that consumers don't realize about kind of the life that their product, that the products that they buy really have. You know, you look at that product and you know that you're going to throw it away, but you don't really think of, you know, what, what was the process that led to the creation of that product in the first place, whether it be the product itself or its packaging. And, you know, where is this, where is this all going to go? Um, so that's a, just a part of the population because certainly there's, there's a large part of the population that is very aware of, you know, the life cycle of, of products and is trying to make that whole thing, um, you know, more, more life friendly. But if I'm thinking of something that, uh, we do that maybe, um, we don't really realize how harmful it would, it might be, you know, synthetic biology comes to mind and, you know, the, the scientist part of me, uh, is absolutely intrigued by synthetic biology, you know, trying to manipulate the actual machinery of cells to create proteins or whatever that have never existed before. But another part of me thinks that, you know, when we were on the threshold of a new technology, particularly the petrochemical era, and we thought, wow, this is great. We have all these carbon chains that we can manipulate in different ways and make new ones, you know, make, make, make new carbon-based compounds that never existed before. And they have all these different properties. And it was like, wow, we have these great properties. Let's just mass produce them and put them out there. And it wasn't until they were mass produced and getting into the environment and into our bodies that we realized that, wow, you know, we should have thought that maybe you know, th- thought this through more to realize what the repercussions might be. But when you talk about something like synthetic biology now, I mean, at least, you know, DDT and things like that uh, are something that exist and they might be polluting the world, but the amount that you put into the world is polluting the world is kind of a fixed amount, you know, unless you produce more unless man produces more. But with synthetic biology, we start creating new self-replicating organisms that do things that existing organisms don't. Uh, You know, to me, it just seems like we're really opening up a potential Pandora's box once those organisms themselves get out into the environment, which ultimately they will. Um, and either they'll just die in the environment because they're not designed to live outside of a you know very controlled laboratory setting. Um, and if they're in the environment, is there a potential for their DNA or other aspects of you know this new cellular structure that can mix with other organisms? So, so you know, I kind of have a, a dual 
perspective on, on synthetic biology. On, on, on the one hand, I think it's fascinating and there's probably a lot of good that can come from it. But on the other hand, boy, we better really, we better really be putting as much effort into thinking and controlling what the negative repercussions could be in the future, as well as, you know, what positive things we can get out of it. So I, I used to not worry at all about genetic engineering and synthetic biology in part because I, I knew how hard it was, um, to, to, to make it work, but that's rapidly changed with the, with the advent of technologies like CRISPR. Um, you know, if, if I was an undergraduate biologist student today, you know, the first thing I would do is look for, oh, how can I, how can I do a project using CRISPR? How can I use that tool because it it is a world changing tool it is it is the equivalent of somebody you know you've had this computer in front of you all the time and you've just been able to maybe <clears throat> log into a couple of programs and now you have access to everything and you can change how it works and you can you know the computer analogy for nature is horrible yeah. but <laughs> but you get the idea that it's this it's this tool that, that enables us to do things cheaply, quickly that we just haven't been able to do before as a biologist. And so now, yeah, it's really opened the door to DIY bioengineering, mm, yeah. which is um, uh, fascinating. And, uh, you know, like I said, it used to not scare me because it was so hard. Now it's not hard. So now it is one of these things that I think uh, we need to ask mm. what role do we want to play in the world? And, and we aren't, uh, we aren't very sophisticated in that conversation. Um, so for, let's take, for example, mosquitoes and malaria. There are ways to do things like create gene drives or engineer, uh, an entire sub species of mosquitoes out of existence. Um, so that, we don't spread malaria or Zika. Should we do something like that? Or is that, is that moving too far? Well, I think, first of all, there's always risk and benefit, right? So you always have to weigh what is the potential benefit to what's the risk. And so if you look at something like malaria in particular, you know, if we can develop something that's going to drastically reduce the exposure of people to malaria, most of whom are poor and already have so much, you know, they have to struggle with and have malaria on top of that. Is it worth taking the risk? And I'd, I'd have a hard time saying, no, it's not worth the risk since I live somewhere where I'm not being exposed to malaria. So that's kind of unfair. But I think at the same time that we're developing these technologies that we really articulate what the potential, uh, you know, drawbacks might be, um, you know, from, from putting these engineered uh, organisms out into the environment or, you know, just what might happen if we take one organism out of the ecosystem, you know, what possibly might fill that gap? Although I guess that's probably a harder question to ask, but. Mm -hmm. No, I think, that, I mean, and that's where I get to, too, uh, is, is sort of looking at it from these two perspectives of how can we align our solutions that uh, are um, empathetic of people 
and then also really try and look at the larger system implications. And I think that's hard to do. Um, but, but, but also maybe what we need to get better practiced at yeah. moving forward, especially with these things that, that can dramatically impact both. Yeah. Here's my next question for you. If you were able to splice in any gene or characteristic from any organism on earth into people, what would it be and why? And let's just assume that you're cool with that. <laughs> or that I could even do it. Um, well, perhaps it's more than a gene to be able to impart humans with the ability to photosynthesize. But I think that would be really amazing if, if humans could, could just go out in the sun and, um, and produce you know, first of all, start using up the carbon dioxide that we're putting out there. You know, if all people were carbon sinks, that, that, that would help. Um, but then we'd all be green and there'd be no <laughs> racial tension anymore. I think that's, it's seri serious about going green means, means turning yourself green. Except in the like fall. It. I don't know. Maybe some of us would turn red or yellow. Is there any particular book or movie or documentary film right now that you saw recently or, or, or really interested in? You know, I keep making lists of books that I want to read and usually never get around to them. Although I, I guess the last book that I read, which is not a new one, but is called Collapse. <clears throat> and I forget the author's name. By Jared Diamond. Yeah. Have you read that book? Yeah, so it's just so fascinating talking about various cultures that thrived at one time and aren't thriving now. And not only is it an interesting read, but it's so pertinent to our current situation, particularly given this election that we're about to have, how, you know, we just keep repeating mistakes of the past and particularly for the United States, um, you know, too much of the population thinks that uh, we're the greatest country on earth and seem to think that nothing is ever going to change that um, or that we have to make sure that we never change anything about our culture in or, or our politics in order to remain the, the greatest country or lose sight of what we are doing and just keep thinking we're the greatest country. But to really learn how other thriving cultures uh, did eventually collapse and what are we doing or not doing um, that those cultures did uh, that, that we have the power to change, you know, while we can. Um, so in some ways, I think that book should be, uh, should be required reading. Mm, that's great. Yes. I, I've always liked, um, Jared Diamond's large scale perspectives and also what you just said around sort of the humbleness to reflect on mm -hmm. the civilizations that have risen and fallen and, and what were the characteristics that might have might have caused some of those things to happen. It, yeah, it is a fascinating book. Yeah, and if you look at where we are, we are repeating many of those. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. 
if okay so mark here's my here's here's the last question for today um if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then be teleported back where would you go okay so i don't mean to be like so uh photosynthesis centric but you know i would love to go back three billion years or whatever and just watch how these single-celled organisms came up with photosynthesis in the first place i would just like to observe at the molecular level um just how did that come about? I mean, I guess you could ask the same question about how did life come about in the first place, but this is a little more specific. Um, but yeah, it would, you know, something so complex that we still don't really understand every aspect of it. You know, was it just an accident, you know, of, of things that happened over you know, hundreds or thousands of years or whatever. And I assume if I can go back 3 billion years, I can fast forward to see the whole process in, you know, an hour. But, uh, you know, how how did that happen? Um, yeah, that's what I'd want to do. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you. It was fun. It's always fun to geek out with other geek-minded people geeky minded people whatever the proper form of that adjective is <laughs> and that's a wrap on episode eight for you careful listeners you might have noticed amelia's laughter in the background a bit on this episode in what can only be deemed as a technology failure that is just totally my own fault i lost her audio recording um, I've been playing with a service called Zencaster, and while I like the sound from the new audio, I'm still working out some of the bugs. So let us know if you like the new sound quality, and of course, Amelia will be back next time. Life Center Podcast can now be found on iTunes, and if you liked what you heard, it really does help us out to give us a rating, make a few comments, share the link with some friends on social media uh, for those people who you think might enjoy our podcast. Until next time, this is Tim saying over and out.